Today we close out a series we've been going through for the past several weeks called Counterfeit Gods. And as we close out that series, I just want to uh, begin by reminding you of one of the undergirding truths of this entire series. And that is that, that idolatry is alive and well in our world today. To help me illustrate this, I, I have a little something here I wanted to, to show you. This has been on my desk in my office here for probably three or four weeks or so. Uh, this is actually uh, part of the, the collection of one of our families here. Jerry and Jean Reynolds and their family, they've, they've been members here for a long time. Jerry was one of our shepherds here in this church for, for many years. Uh, if you don't know much about Jerry and Jean's story for, for decades, I think something like 50 years, Jerry has been traveling to Ghana and preaching the gospel there. And there are churches that are planted because of the work that they did even in the 60s, I think, Jerry and Jean took their young children over to Ghana and spent uh, several years there. Well, uh, in the, the years since they've, they've been making those trips, they'll always bring back little, little things with them. And, and this, is, this is something that, that Jerry brought back with him on one of these trips. Uh, his son, Alan, let me borrow it, and it's been on my desk for the past couple of weeks. He just came by and he said, hey, I know we're doing this thing on counterfeit gods, and I have something here I wanted to show you. thought you might want to use it. So I've been saving it here for the, the final uh, installment of this series. This is called a bush devil in Ghana. And this is uh, actually a, a god, an idol, I guess, if you want to call it that, that, um, that people in the, the deep, most remote parts of Ghana would actually worship. I think Jerry bought this one at a local uh, market there in town, but, uh, but he's, pretty, he's pretty ugly if you can see him up close. And I asked Alan about that, and Alan said, yeah, that's, that's by design. They are, are purposefully ugly because the thought is that it will, uh, his ugliness will keep the evil spirits away, all right? Uh, from where you're sitting, he may look like a one-eared Batman. I don't know. Um, he has one ear not on purpose. Uh, whenever uh, Alan and Jerry were overseas and they bought this, Alan put it in his luggage, and when he got home and pulled it out, he realized that he lost an ear somewhere overseas. So, um, but this is, this is a, a counterfeit god. This is... Um, an idol that is worshipped and revered in parts of our world. Uh, it's a little weird, frankly, as we are worshiping God here today for me to hold this in front of you. So I know that it's a little kind of weird, but I just, I bring this to you to illustrate this and to, and to, to let you know what Alan told me. Uh, he said as, uh, as they would go through, you know, the, the villages and towns and stuff, if you had one of these like outside your home, then he said the people, they take this stuff very seriously. He said, you could put a $100 bill underneath this and set it outside your home and come back in the morning and, and it would still be there because the people so uh, revere and worship these little guys. And so he said, uh, that's, that's how the, the people there in Ghana uh, deal with, with these counterfeit gods. That's how seriously they take it. He said, what's funny is that the Christians who know that this is just a piece of wood, that there's nothing to be worshipped or revered, he said, uh, they won't touch the $100 bill either because they're just honest. <laughs> they, they won't take the money because they're just honest, truthful people, okay? Uh, so, so again, idolatry is alive and well in our world today. And uh, I'm going to let Lee take this and get him uh, securely off stage so we can kind of get on with, uh, with the rest of our morning. But, um, but, but like I said, I share that with you to, to let you know that idolatry is, is alive and well in our world uh, the question that I, I ask you, though, is, uh, okay, so think about here in the, in the United States. Our idols, our counterfeit gods are, are definitely, uh, I think, a little more sophisticated, but 
but I think they're also no less dangerous than the one that we just saw or some of these other things that we've talked about here over the last few weeks. Uh, I don't know what it would be like in your uh, neighborhood. I know there, there are certain places where if we were to take that, that uh, little guy and put a $100 bill underneath him and you came back in the morning, the, the little figure might still be there, but it wouldn't take long, maybe a night or two or three before the $100 bill would grow legs and walk away, right? Because in our culture... There's one final counterfeit God that, that we haven't talked about much uh, over the course of this series, and it is, is this one that you'll see on the screen. It is the, the counterfeit God of greed, covetousness, uh, materialism. Might be different words that we would use to describe it, but it is, uh, it is this counterfeit God of, of greed. It was about 100 years ago, uh, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche predicted that money— would one day become the dominant object of worship in Western culture. Uh, I don't pretend to know a lot about uh, Nietzsche or philosophy per se, but I know he, was, he, was not, he didn't have a lot of really great things to say about Christianity. But he, he was just sort of prognosticating and looking forward a, a hundred years or so, and he said the things that, that were once done for love of God will one day be done for love of money. And I ask you, was he correct? I I think, personally, we can answer that question with a a yes and no. Uh, Clearly, if we look back over the last hundred years or so, we we could find evidence of the ways in which greed and materialism, covetousness, we could find evidence of how that has continued to wreak havoc on, on human hearts and minds and souls. Uh, we, we could look at our own lives and say, yeah, there are some places where, where greed has really left an imprint uh, on us. But at the same time, to, to be fair to what the Bible has to say, according to God's Word, this is not some recent trend. It's not a, a new phenomenon. According to God's Word, this has been something that, that we've dealt with for, for quite some time as a people. It was 2,000 years ago the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that the love of money was a root of all kinds of evil. So what we're talking about here with this final counterfeit God of of greed, materialism, we're talking about an age-old problem that continues to plague us even today. Timothy Keller has written this book, Counterfeit Gods, and we've been using that as kind of a reference point throughout this series. In this particular part on greed, Keller says that as a, as a church leader over the years, he's had so many people come by uh, to talk to him, to confess one sin or another, to say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. And so he, he says, basically, you name it, and I've, I've had somebody over the course of time come and to share their struggles with me and say, hey, will you pray for me because I'm, I'm struggling with X. He says, except for this one area. He says, I, I can't remember over the course of my career, I can't remember anyone ever coming in and saying to me that they really are struggling with greed. He says, I can't, I can't point to one time when someone said, hey, would you pray for me and my struggle with, with materialism? And I think that's really interesting because I, I'm, I'm not sure I could say the, the same thing. I, I'm not sure that I could point to to a, a, an instance where someone has come to me and, and has said, hey, would you pray for me because of my greed or my materialism? I, don't, I can't recall that ever happening in my short career in ministry, but maybe even more, more importantly, I don't know that, that I've ever confessed to anyone the ways in which greed and materialism are a constant 
threat, a constant uh, presence in my life as well. So this is an area I think it's fair to say that we all, we all struggle with. And one of the things that, that makes this conversation a little bit tricky is, is because th- there's, there's kind of a sliding scale that we use with regard to, to wealth and money. Uh, there, there's always a way for us to relativize the conversation. And, and what I mean by that is this. Uh, if you were to think about the, the people uh, who in your mind are, are rich or wealthy, there's a pretty simple way for us that we typically go about determining uh, who is rich or who is wealthy. The, the rich man or the rich woman is the person who has more than me. Uh, the, the rich person is, is the person who tends to have more possessions than I do, or, or, or they have a, a larger bank account, or maybe they live in a nicer house, a different part of town, or they have all the coolest gadgets or whatever. We, we tend to sort of relativize that, and we say, well, I'm not rich, I'm not wealthy, I'm normal, but those people who are just a little bit further along than me, those are the ones who are wealthy. Those are the ones who are rich. We all tend to do that, I think, but, but that, that really shows, I think, some of the danger here, too. We really need to resist that impulse if we're going to consider the ways in which this particular counterfeit God is a threat to us and a threat to our lives. I think that's the only way we'll be able to confess this as an area of struggle for us. And I need to say this, too, up front before we dive into some, some places in God's Word. It's not lost on me it's not lost on me that we just finished celebrating Thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Uh, I love everything about Thanksgiving uh, and starting with the food. And so I just will tell you on Thursday, I indulged way too much when it comes to the food, all right? We had this massive spread of food. We had turkey and ham. We had uh, potatoes, we had green beans, we had sweet potatoes that my mother-in-law makes. They're just like eating candy. Those things are just incredible. We had fresh corn. Uh, we had, uh, let's see, bread. Sunny has found uh, Christy Johnson's bread recipe, had her show her how to make some of this homemade bread that is just incredible. And so we had this huge bowl of bread. And every time my kids would go back for more bread, I had to wince to keep from telling them, stop eating the bread because I want it. Because I wanted to hoard as much of Sonny's cooking on my plate as possible because she's a great cook. And so, I, I mean, I overdid it. I'll just be honest with you. And then, you know what I did? As soon as I finished eating, I went and sat down in my chair and I watched seven hours of football. <laughs> because football is awesome, all right? There's, I can't think of anything more American than sitting there and eating that meal and then plopping down in front of that chair and watching football. It was just fantastic. And then, the next day was Friday, which is Black Friday. And there are a lot, a lot of people have strong opinions about Black Friday, okay? There's some people that I listen to and they say, you know, we don't go shopping on Black Friday because it, this is family time and we're staying at home and I'm not waking up at three in the morning to go get a big screen TV and y'all can just have it. And so there's like that camp over here, right? Some of you are probably there. And then some people are kind of like, well, I kind of like going shopping on Black Friday and I know it's a family time and that's why I take my whole family and I drag my husband around every store because it's a family holiday. And that's kind of what we were doing on Friday. We, we got out and we went shopping on Friday and I ran into some of you, so I won't out you here from the pulpit, but uh, some of you were there shopping as well. And so, um, so all of those things uh, come together to make Thanksgiving really, really special for me. I love all of it. But here's the point why I'm even talking about it to you today. 
It's because in all of those things, so the, the food and the football and, um, and the shopping, the question I need to be asking is this, how much is enough? How do I know when enough is enough? Especially in light of what we all just did, like on Thursday and Friday and Saturday. How do I know when enough is enough? I think this is the, this is the place where we begin with this particular conversation. Today, I'm not going to have a whole lot of answers for you because when we talk about wealth and possessions, and, you know, that a lot of this, I think we're all intelligent enough to figure this out on our own. What I want to do, though, is to give you a couple of good questions today to kind of help guide us as we just think about how we can keep this particular counterfeit God at bay. So the first one is this, you know, how do we know when enough is enough? When it comes to money, when it comes to the amount of money that I have in my bank account, how do I know when enough is enough? Uh, remarkably, research shows that when, when people are asked that question, no matter where they might be coming from economically, the standard answer that, that comes back more often than any other, most people are asked the question, so how much more money would it take for you to be content, for you to be satisfied, for you to be happy? The standard answer that comes back, about 10%. Uh, if I had about 10% more income, if I received a 10% raise, then I think I would be pretty satisfied. That tends to be the standard reply that most people in this country give to that question. But what's funny is that the same research shows that as they follow up and ask those people the same question over time, inevitably they do find people who have now, over time, they have accumulated that 10% more. They've hit that, that benchmark that they thought they needed to reach in order to be satisfied. And so when they come back and they ask the same question to the same group of people years later, you know where this is going, right? The answer comes back. How much do you need to be content and satisfied? The answer tends to be, well, 10% more. <laughs> just, just a little bit more is, is what I need in order to be satisfied, in order to be content. One researcher says, by its very nature, this is the conclusion of some of these studies, by its very nature, she says, greed is endless. It's, it's never assuaged. And she says, by being a form of the impulse to live, by basically being a, a human sort of trait, she says it ceases only with death. That is so depressing, isn't it? That all of this research and all this study kind of boils down, and this, this researcher walks away and says, you know what? Uh, to be greedy is to be human, so if you want to be cured of your greed, you have to die. <laughs> you, you just have to stop living. Uh, here's, here's the good news, okay? That's not entirely true. The Bible says in Colossians 3 verse 5 that greed is idolatry. Spells it out really clearly there, okay? So it's, it's obvious this is one of those areas we really need to dig in. We really need to hear what God has to say on this particular point. But she's wrong in the sense that this is something that we have to live with forever. Maybe we need to do a little bit of spiritual dying. Maybe we do need to do a, a little bit of laying some things down here. But I want you to hear today that the counterfeit God of greed is one of those that by the grace of God we can overcome. And in God's Word, we come across an individual in Luke chapter 19. If you want to go ahead and get your Bibles there, we're, we're going to look at Luke 19 in just a minute. But we come across this individual in, in Luke chapter 19 who, who shows us what it means uh, to overcome this counterfeit God of greed. By the grace of God, by his interaction with Jesus, Zacchaeus comes to this place where he is able to, to find victory, to find life on the other side of this particular counterfeit God. 
while you're getting your Bibles there, uh, this, this story in, in Luke, uh, this Zacchaeus episode in chapter 19, it takes place in the midst of a really important context in Luke's gospel. Starting in Luke 9, uh, it says that Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem. And from Luke 9 all the way through to Luke 19, uh, Jesus is marching toward Jerusalem and he continues to ratchet up the teaching with more and more intensity. He talks more about discipleship in Luke's gospel here than anywhere else. And so we, we get this glimpse from Luke 9 all the way to Luke 19. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he has more and more to say about the things that really matter. And so the, the idea here is that if we're going to also be disciples of Jesus, if we choose to follow him, to make him the Lord of our lives, then we listen to him and he has a word for every aspect of our lives. That he is intent on, on reorienting our lives around him. And that has implications for a lot of different things, including our relationship to our money. So in Luke 18, one chapter earlier, Jesus has this encounter with a rich young ruler. And this young man comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically says to him, uh, go sell your possessions, give all that money to the poor, and then, then you'll have life. And it says that the man goes away saddened because he had great wealth. He's extremely wealthy. And this prompts Jesus to say this in Luke 18. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, well then, who can be saved? But he said, it is, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So that's at the beginning of Luke 18. At, at the end of that chapter, you also have this. You have Jesus healing this poor, blind beggar. Okay, so if you have the rich young ruler and he's at, at kind of the upper crust end of the spectrum, okay, he's doing really, really well. He's very affluent. Now down here on the other end of the spectrum, you have this poor beggar. And basically, Jesus says to him in Luke eighteen forty two, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately it says this blind man, he gets up and, and he begins to follow Jesus and he goes about praising God all the way. So in Luke 18, you have these examples of what faithfulness looks like. Uh, the example from Luke 18 is this, that the rich are the ones who turn away from Jesus because they can't, they can't cut what it is that he calls them to do, but the poor are the ones who are drawn to Jesus, and they choose to be his followers. So that's the way it sets up in Luke 18. But now when we get to Luke 19, that whole paradigm is kind of expanded because in the story of Zacchaeus, we're going to find a, a rich man, one who is wealthy, but one who also finds his way to the kingdom of of God. Here's Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this, and they began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. 
For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what is lost. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus is the area's chief tax collector, which meant he was utterly despised by his fellow countrymen. By by the fellow Jews around him, he would have been uh, completely despised. The only people who lived in luxury and comfort in, in this period were the Romans or those who collected taxes for the Romans. And so as the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus would have been very wealthy. Based on what we've seen, he seems to be uh, a, a very unlikely candidate for faith. He doesn't seem, again, Jesus has just said it is really, really hard for someone of great abundance to come to know the Lord, to enter into the kingdom. And so, uh, so with Zacchaeus, we have here a man with dirty hands. We have a man who uh, has, uh, his hands are filled with ill-gotten gain. You know, he is the one who's, who's continuing to, to lay a heavy burden on the people, and he benefits from that. So, so again, however you want to put it, he owns a big house, uh, has the nicest food, uh, the best clothing, all of this. This is why the tax collectors are so reviled in Jesus' day. But there's something else going on here. That's Zacchaeus at surface level, but there's something going on deeper within his heart because, because we see some pretty strange behavior, don't we? Zacchaeus does some really bizarre things in this episode for a wealthy person. Uh, First of all, we have to ask, why is the wealthiest man in town drawn out to the crowd to hear the words of an itinerant preacher? Jesus is coming through. No doubt he's heard about this this wonder worker, this fantastic teacher, this miracle man. And so so why is it that Zacchaeus, as the wealthiest man in town, is is drawn out there to, to hear this preaching? That's one piece, but... You know, the crowds are there, so that's not so bizarre. But then on top of that, he gets there, and he's, he's short, and he can't see, and the crowds are pressing around. So, so what he does then is really just strange, especially in a culture that, that took so much pride in, in dignity, okay? Picture the wealthiest man in town climbing up a tree, the most childlike action that you could think of. He climbs up in this tree in order to see Jesus. Why does he do that? You know, what, what's going on in, in Zacchaeus' heart and his mind that prompts him to do this? I think these kinds of actions are, are indicators to us that something is missing. Something's missing in Zacchaeus' life. Sure, he might enjoy the, the creature comforts of this plush lifestyle that he's built for himself, but, but in the end, you know, it's just, it's just not enough. Because that promise of abundance, that promise of a good life that he's been pursuing, it leaves him feeling kind of empty. Because that's really the way greed always works, isn't it? Greed always promises abundance. But in the end, it, it always produces emptiness. I mean, that's, that's Zacchaeus' story here. So, you know, back to the question, how much is enough? How much would have been enough for Zacchaeus? How much do I need to tax other people? How much do I need to continue to pilfer from them in order to line my own pockets? How big does my house need to be? How much good food can I possibly eat? Uh, how, how nice do my clothes have to be? Zacchaeus probably wrestled with all of that, but in the end, he's not satisfied. And that's what keeps him up there in this tree of all places, just hoping to get a glimpse of who Jesus is. And that's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, he says, Watch out and be on guard against all kinds of greed, for man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know what this verse tells me? It tells me that there are all kinds of greed for us to be on guard against. So now I'm back to what I just engaged in this weekend. So Thursday, you know, the best meal that I've ever had in my life. You know what happened about six or eight or ten hours later? I was hungry again, right? 
watching all that football as great as it was, guess what? There's a whole slate of games that start here in about uh, 30 minutes, you know? And there'll be some tonight. There'll be some, there'll be one tomorrow. There'll be one on Thursday, then next Saturday. I mean, it just on and on and on, right? On, on Friday, you were out shopping Black Friday, right? But now you've got Cyber Monday coming up. Hope you saved enough pennies for Cyber Monday, you know? And then whatever else follows that, you know, Farmer's Market Tuesday or, you know, Flea Market Wednesday. I don't know what is next, but there's always like something there for us to be on guard against because greed takes many, many, many different forms. And so back to the question, how much is enough? And in Zacchaeus, we see this, this, this person who has enough, he has so much, and yet it's never enough. He finds himself climbing up in a tree in order to hear the words of Jesus. There's something that happens in that encounter that leads to, to this abundant life that Zacchaeus enjoys. It's the abundant life that Paul talks about, and it's that abundant life in Christ that yields this sense of contentment that really comes in any season. Paul says this in Philippians 4. I want to remind you of these words here this morning. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. We've kind of misapplied that verse in a, in a lot of different ways over the years, but, but the idea there is, uh, is, is contentment. The idea there is that because I have Christ, because I am in Christ, then I can experience contentment in any season. That the abundance that I, I live out of is not the abundance of possessions, or food, or relationships, or anything else. It is solely found in the abundant life that Jesus Christ gives me because that is the degree of salvation that he offers. Not just a washing away of my sins, but definitely that, but also peace. The life that comes from knowing, the security that comes from knowing Christ and calling him Lord, all of that contributes to this sense of contentment that Paul lives out of. So when Jesus sees Zacchaeus up there in that tree, and he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, it's pretty forward action, isn't it? Jesus says, I need to come to your place. And Zacchaeus opens his door, and that leads to this transformative moment where Zacchaeus repents, and he becomes living proof of what Jesus just said to the rich young ruler. He says it's really hard for a person of abundance to come into the kingdom But what is impossible with man is possible with God. God can do this. And so Zacchaeus repents. And he offers to give four times the amount to anyone that he has wronged. Going above and beyond what it would take to make reconciliation possible. And then Jesus roars, salvation has come to this house. It's a beautiful scene. So as we wind this, this part of our worship down, um, like I told you, I don't, I don't have a lot of, of concrete answers for you on how to keep that, that greed and that materialism at bay. I think, it's, I think it's ever-present. But I have found there are a couple of questions that if we keep those at the forefront of our minds, that I think they can be helpful to us as we try and, and, and battle this counterfeit God. So here, here they are. The, the first one I've been asking throughout this, the, this message But how do I know when enough is enough? I think it's a good question for us. 
How do you and I know when enough is enough? What, what kind of personal barometer do I have in my life that begins to fire when I, I cross into dangerous territory of, of greed and, and consumption and materialism? How would I even know? How would I even go about defining what enough looks like? I think it's a great question for us. Uh, who do you have in your life that you trust enough to hold you accountable to this? Is there someone in your life that you trust who knows you well enough who, who you could say, hey, I, I just want you to know you are a trusted voice in my life. And, and I feel like you know me pretty well and I just want you to be, I want you to be there and I want, you to, I want to give you liberty to ask me when you think I'm kind of getting into territory where I'm, I'm just being greedy. Is there somebody in your life that you trust that, that much? Some of you who are, who are married, I, I suspect your spouse is the one who knows you uh, that well that you would entrust with that. Maybe you just need to kind of give them permission to, to say those words to you. Maybe it's a close friend. Uh, maybe it's a, a parent. Maybe you have that sort of relationship with a child. I don't know, you know, one of your adult children you, you kind of have that relationship with. But how do you know when enough is enough? And who in your life is going to be there to call you out on it when enough has become too much in your life? It takes that sort of trusted relationship in order for us to really, I think, cover the blind spots on this particular counterfeit God uh, of greed. So that's the first question I'd want to ask to you. The second is this, do I own my possessions or do my possessions own me? Do I own my possessions or do they own me? Am I spending an inordinate amount of time worrying about acquiring possessions, wealth, or maybe not just that, just keeping secure all the things that I've already amassed. In Luke 11 and 12, Jesus has a lot to say about this again as he's marching toward Jerusalem. And he, and he talks about uh, greed not just being the love of money, but it's excessively worrying about it as well. And so he has this teaching, this parable he tells about uh, tearing down barns and building bigger ones. And in an agrarian culture, that, that really connects uh, with, uh, with, with people. But, you know, most of us probably aren't barn owners, but... Um, but in, in 2014, the self-storage unit industry, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, it's places you, you're renting storage because you run out of room in your own house for things, or maybe you're kind of in transition between one house and another, and you kind of are in a spot where you have to downsize or whatever. In 2014, uh, the self-storage industry generated more than $24 billion worth of revenue in this country. It's been referred to as a recession-proof business. Uh, they estimate that there's somewhere north of 50,000 of those units that are in use right now as we speak, uh, which is somewhere north of 2 billion square feet of storage that we're using, right? Because we don't have room in our houses for all of our stuff. So again, let me just ask you, do you own those things or do they own you? And then finally, uh, the question that I think comes out of Zacchaeus, maybe more so than any other, is this. So, which of these questions do I ask more often? How much must I give or how much can I give? In the example of Zacchaeus, you find here one who's willing to go to the limit in order to make uh, reconciliation possible. He's bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And so he's not, he's not interested in kind of hitting that benchmark of, okay, have I given enough? Is this good? God, am I, am I good? Have I given enough to kind of like take care of my guilt or whatever? No, this guy is living freely. There is a, a liberated spirit that comes with Zacchaeus, as Tom was talking about a minute ago. Like he's just saying, hey, this is, this is what 
I have and I want to deploy these resources in a way that, that, give, that bear witness to the kingdom of God. So, so imagine you're one of those guys that Zacchaeus has wronged, okay? And like you wake up Monday morning and like he's knocking at your door and you go and you open it and there he is and you're like, oh great, it's this guy again, right? And you're thinking, well, I can't give you any more than I already did. I gave you more than I had to give you last month and now you're back. And you know, you've got all these thoughts running through your mind. And before you can even say a word, Zacchaeus just holds up a hand. He says, stop. And he hands you like a, a bag of cash. <laughs> and he says, look, I have wronged you. I have wronged you for years. I don't even know if that's enough to cover it, but if it's not, I will be back. Because something has happened in my life and I found what I was looking for. So here, take this. I want to make amends, okay? Because I have found the abundant life in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if Zacchaeus walks away and you're left there scratching your head? Like, what just happened? You know? But that's what happens when Jesus gets a hold of our lives. When Jesus is the Lord of my life, that means he's Lord of every component and every dimension, including that financial realm, And so in Zacchaeus, we see one who's giving freely. And the question he says here is, not how much must I give, but how much can I give? What makes that possible for Zacchaeus is the same thing that makes it possible for us to overcome any counterfeit God in our lives, and that's repentance. Zacchaeus does a complete 180. He's headed this direction, and he realizes how empty that is. I think that's what puts him up in that tree in the first place. But it's that interaction with Christ that leads him into this life of abundance. Materially, I don't know. Zacchaeus may have gone broke doing this. I don't know how much money he could have possibly had. He gave half of it to the poor, and then the rest of it he's given back, you know, four times what he he had had wronged people. Zacchaeus probably, I'm guessing, didn't have a life of material abundance after this. But I bet when we meet him in heaven, I bet what he'll say is that it was worth every penny. Whatever I had to give up to follow the risen Savior, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. I bet that's what he'll say. You can ask him yourself. We'll see. But the key to all this is repentance. Is there something in your life you need to repent of? If there are some things that you need to, uh, to turn away from and do a complete 180 for, I hope you hear the, the promise of Jesus Christ today that, that that promise of salvation is available. Maybe today you need to lay down the counterfeit God of self Maybe you need to follow Jesus into the water of baptism and make him the Lord of your life. Have your sins washed away and begin that life of following after him. Uh, I can't think of anything that would bring us greater joy than just to be able to bear witness to that today. So so if that needs to happen, I hope it will. Maybe there's some things that you just want to pray about, some things that uh, are on your heart you want to share with this, this church family. It would be our honor to pray for you as well. Whatever the case is, if you need to respond in any way publicly, I hope you'll do so. Let's stand and sing.